0: It is customary to complain of the bustle and strenuousness of our epic. But in truth, the chief mark of our epic is a profound laziness and fatigue. And the fact is that the real laziness is the cause of the apparent bustle. Take one quite external case. The streets are noisy with taxicabs and motor cars, but this is not due to human activity, but to human repose. There would be less bustle if there were more activity, if people were simply walking about. Our world would be more silent if it were more strenuous. Well, hello everyone, and welcome back to Reading with Joy. This is my summer book club, and we are on chapter... Goodness gracious is it chapter eight of nine in Orthodoxy by GK Chesterton. I am so delighted and proud of all of you who have stuck with me thus far. I always see a slight dip towards the end uh, in the downloads because it takes a long time to get all the way through a book and this has been a challenging one but I have loved reading and thinking and talking through this with you all. And as I always say, but I truly mean this, I get more out of the books that we have read in the last two years because of your comments. I don't see myself merely as teaching through it, but as really learning from your insights. So I have really enjoyed this. Now today I'm doing this chapter and this podcast a day early because tomorrow I will be traveling on my way to North Carolina. Um, Joel and I will be doing several events there. We're doing a, um, an evening event called Speaking with Joy Live, where we'll look at the question of Why Beauty and Goodness Matters in a Broken and Urgent World, and we'll be doing kind of a concert with some of our own music, and I'll be doing a talk, some talks, and Joel will be doing a little talk, and really hope it'll be a wonderful event. So we're doing that, and then we're doing a tea, which is entirely full. I can't wait to see all of you there, and then a small um, event for some UNC grad students. So I am so excited to go on this adventure, and I'm also excited for next week, which will be our final week of the podcast, which I'll be a bit sad about, Um, but then we will be doing another Live event in Colorado Springs, which I hope to record the audio for and put up for all of you here. But uh, if I can't, I would really encourage you to come to that event. Uh, It will be at Holy Trinity Anglican Church on August 14th. There will be music, there will be inspiring conversations and um, passages read aloud from books I love, and we'll really be wrestling with why does it matter to fill our souls with good and beautiful things when the world is falling apart? And that is a question that seems urgent to me, and I I hope that we'll be able to wrestle through that together. I, I want you all to know that I do my best to bring you all good and beautiful things, but that's not out of an ignorance of the of the brokenness, of the constant urgency and tragedy of the world. I don't look away from those things. As a matter of fact, part of the reason that I do this podcast is because I feel like the world is just awash with information, awash with news and with bad news. And it can become kind of overstimulating. We can, we can um, kind of have a sensory overload. But I truly believe that to be able to be the kind of people can, who can handle that well, we have to have our hearts tuned towards what goodness and bravery and courage and love and gentleness is. And we can't do that unless we are filling up and shaping our hearts with good things. So that is why I do this podcast. That is why we are doing this evenings. And so I hope you'll be able to join us um, either in North Carolina. I can't wait to see many of you there. We are packed. We had to move rooms because the one that we had couldn't fit everyone who was signing up. And I hope also to see many of you at the event in Colorado and also I just want to thank all of you we have a small ticket price for that for those different events and I want to thank you all because that um, goes towards providing for Joel's and my plane tickets both here and Um, back to the UK, and also for this final push as we're kind of moving over the last hump for me into my last year of PhD, which is absolutely wild. I cannot believe that I'm hopefully nearly to the last year of this PhD, which uh, brings me one more thing to say thank you for, which is I do not say thank you enough on here publicly to all of the patrons who support me on Patreon. Um, you all have been the reason, truly, I, this is not exaggerating, that I have been able to make it financially through this year while doing my podcast and the PhD. Um, last year, I kind of reached a breaking point. I was very exhausted and I thought, well, I need to finish this PhD. Um, but I also need to be able to support myself. So either I need to quit the podcast and start doing some other kind of work, or I need to see if there's a way that um, this podcast and the people behind it would be willing to support me. And you all did, and it's been so fun. Uh, as a thank you to all the patrons who pay either 10 or $2 a month, I post updates and book lists and occasional secret podcasts. Um, but really, all it's not like a, a, a easy... It's not like I'm selling a product, that's really just a place for me to say thank you to you all for supporting me, and I honestly could not have done this without you. So thank you, thank you, thank you, and um, I think those are, I didn't actually mean to go into that long um, monologue about why beauty matters and uh, why you should come to all the events, but it does matter and you should. So thank you all for listening, and without further ado, let's dive into this week's chapter, chapter 8, The Romances of Orthodoxy. Now, I don't know about you all, but I really enjoyed this this week's chapter. And I feel like it was in one of those moments in which Chesterton is in a state of clarity. Um, just because it's fun to share this. I read it this morning out on my front lawn while sipping a little homemade coffee and my dog Darcy would not leave me alone. Um, she kept on trying to, she's very sweet. I mean, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say it like it's a bad thing, but she just really wanted to like sit as close to me or on top of me. Um, and despite this distraction and the distraction of the loveliness of the day, I really enjoyed the clarity and interest of this, of this week's chapter. So he starts off the chapter with this passage that I, op- that I opened with, where he talks about how the bustle of our day is really a disguise not for a, an intense amount of activity, um, but for a laziness and kind of a, a settling backwards. And this is a really interesting um, kind of uh, comment that he made, and I, I think that it's uh, been brought forth all the more in our own current times where um, I've thought about this a lot, that we have every way of making things shorter and easier for us. We have washing machines. We used to have to wash things by hands and dishwashers. And we have cars to get everywhere. And we have emails instead of letters that go so much quicker. And so all of these things we would think would be a great kind of time-saving capacity. And yet, uh, and so you would think, and I think perhaps people in his time would assume that in our day, we would all just be lounging around with tons of extra time and we would accomplish a lot more. But of course, the interesting outcome of of our immensity of having free time is that um, we actually report feeling like we have far less free time than previous generations. There's a study on this, and I'll, I'll try to put it in the show notes. Um, and I think that's such an interesting kind of dichotomy that... Even though we have all of these things that supposedly make us bustle less, we find ourselves kind of more dissipated and um, we feel as though we have less time to do things than we did before, despite the fact that we have all these modern conveniences. And um, I will pause here to note that I moved to the basement because there was a a roofer on our roof, Uh, but now there's someone mowing the lawn outside. So uh, if that (laughs) interrupts, you'll know what that is. I always enjoy uh, sharing with you all. What is happening in my daily life. Anyway, uh, this kind of dichotomy between having so much of our lives occupied with things that are supposed to save our time, our, save ourselves time and yet also feeling that we have less free time um, is, is tied, I think, to that podcast that I did with Rebecca Lamb and that sense of boredom and of acedia. And that just because we have free time doesn't mean we'll actually use it very well. And it's funny because I found in my own PhD that um, obviously right now I'm doing more work than I have ever done in my life. I don't know if that's obvious, but it is obvious to me. I, um, I'm i trying to write this 80,000 word PhD uh, while also trying to record these podcasts. While also doing other things like this This uh, fall, I'll also be teaching and, and hosting a study group. And yet, ironically, I have found that in this season of my life, I've read more for pleasure than I ever have before. And I think that there's actually a connection, like Chesterton is drawing out, um, between industry and rest. I think that when we have the structure of hard work, we actually find ourselves resting and doing more things well uh, because we have that structure to depend upon. It reminds me of this wonderful uh, passage from a book I've been reading by Madeline Lingle where she's talking about structure. And this is how I always feel about summers. um, Where she says, students, she's talking to a group of students in the 70s, Students talked loudly about wanting to be free to dance, to make loves, to be themselves. So do I. So we left literature and talked about the body, and I kept asking questions. What is it in you which gives you this freedom? Finally, one young man with great reluctance pulled out the word skeleton. It is our bones, our structure, which frees us to dance, to make love. Without our structure, we would be imprisoned amorphous blobs of flesh, incapable of response. The amoeba has a minimum of structure, but I doubt it has much fun. And this, I think, is kind of the whole thrust of what Chesterton begins to argue in this chapter, is that the idea of throwing out orthodoxy, of throwing out kind of the underpinnings of orthodox Christian belief, we may think that we're giving ourselves freedom, but actually we're imprisoning ourselves to other things in the same way that all of these time-saving mechanisms have actually made us um, much more frantic and much less rested and much more kind of lazy. And so I think that's an interesting kind of way to set up this chapter. But there's another reason that he's setting up the chapter this way, and that's that in the same way that automobiles and all of these, and trains, take over the physical activity and make it look as though there's a lot of activity, when really, we're just lazy. Um, the same thing can be said of our kind of modern ways of thinking. It basically says that these big words we use, the concepts that we allow kind of to take over our language and our vocabulary, become like the trains and the automobiles, where they it appears that we're doing a lot of mental effort, But really, we're kind of sitting passively in the idea and letting it take us places um, that we didn't actually have to get to with our own intellect. And so he he kind of challenges us to think that maybe there are some things that we think are bright and daring ideas, but that really we're just using these words that we haven't thought through thoroughly as kind of expedients, as trains that take us somewhere. And that maybe if we stepped out of the train and did some of the um, intellectual work ourselves, we'd find there is actually less bustle and confusion than we might have thought. And I think that's such um, an interesting question. And so then the rest of the chapter, he kind of unpicks some of these automobiles of thought, as you might put it, things that people just say without thinking about um, and allow to take them towards conclusions that if they kind of plotted it through intellectually on their own. Instead, they might find to be really ridiculous. And so in the next little bit, I'm going to talk through those different ideas that he brings up. But I think that an interesting thing to think about for us is what are those automobiles of thoughts for us? What are those big words, those concepts, those ideas, those assumptions that we assume are confusing and big and important, but really might be kind of vehicles for allowing ourselves to not think critically and well. So that's something that I'd actually love to hear your thoughts about in the comments. What are the things, what are the big words of our generation that act like the trains that take us places without us having to actually do the intellectual work, and which if we did the intellectual work, we might discover there was less confusion than we thought. So I want to hear your thoughts about that in the comments on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. It reminds me of a song um, by Sufian Stevens, where he says, um, there's this wonderful passage where he says, Faith and reason, I've wasted my life playing dumb. And I think that what Chesterton is saying in this is that uh, we have to have faith and reason, as we've established, we can't have one of them on our own, but that when we actually apply those and use those, there are some things that are less confusing than we might think, and we don't want to waste our lives playing dumb. So now let's dive into the several things that Chesterton kind of chats through. What were the train stations of, um, of the intellect in his time? Well, I've paused for a moment because I thought the mowing was getting slightly ridiculous. So we are back. I have had water. The mowing seems to have stopped. And we're going to dive in now to uh, the kind of easy and lazy thoughts of Chesterton's own time. So the thing he kind of picks on is uh, liberalism. Now, it should be noted that he's not... This is such a loaded word that it takes a long time to unpick. And he's not talking about liberalism as in the idea that... Um, that men have inherent value and we should um, attempt to live in such a way that we do not um, impinge on each other's freedoms or rights, although I think he would have a lot to say about that. He would have a lot to qualify in that. He's kind of talking about it as in the liberal of the 19th century. I've been reading Brothers Karamazov, and there is a lot that is attached to the idea of liberalism in that era and then also in Chesterton's own. And for him, he kind of thinks that people tend to use this word in a way that is almost meaningless. And if liberalism has to do with freedom, he's saying a lot of times the way that the word is used uh, and the assumptions that are brought with it are actually not, in fact, um, leading towards liberality or towards the freedom of mankind. And the first example he gives of this is a disbelief in miracles. So in his own time, you would think of the liberal minister as being someone who absolutely disbelieved in miracles, and he points out that this—that a disbelief in miracles is actually less of a free-thinking position because it limits you. It's actually—it's as he puts um, down here: um, the man of the nineteenth century does not believe, uh, disbelieve in the resurrection because his liberal Christianity allowed him to do it. Rather, he disbelieved in it because his very strict materialism did not allow him to believe it. So there's a sense in which um, a disbelief in miracles, which is assumed to be this kind of liberal ideology, actually confines uh, man's ability to think freely rather than uh, leaving it open-ended. Because, and and again, this is one of those moments in which Chesterton is not arguing for miracles, although certainly he would agree that they happen, um, but that he's saying, well, let's think about how we think about these things. And as he points out, people who, who don't believe in miracles, it always means a man who is free to disbelieve that Christ came out of his grave. It never means a man who is free to believe that his own aunt came out of her grave. So this kind of idea is actually more limiting than it is um, liberating. And that to assign the idea of liberalism more freedom to it is actually to limit man's intellect further, rather than um, to make it freer. And he he makes this point where he says, If a man cannot believe in miracles, there is an end to the matter. He is not particularly liberal, but he is perfectly honorable and logical, which are much better things. So I think the point that he's making is that in his own time, there was kind of this assumption that to be liberal, to be free-thinking, was to disbelieve in miracles. But that, in fact, that really has nothing to do with liberalism. It doesn't make you more or less liberal. Um, in fact, it actually limits your your thought, your ability to believe more than if you were open to the possibility of, of miracles, even if you didn't necessarily believe them. That's what he's saying is that a man who doesn't believe in miracles, um, that has nothing to do with whether or not he's liberal or free. It may have something more to do with his, um, with his own thoughts, and whether or not he's logical, and whether or not he's following the ends of his own logic. Uh, and so this is the first thing um, that he attacks is kind of this idea that um, that it is more liberal, by which he means more free, more open um, to truth and to ideas, uh, to disbelieve miracles than to believe them. But really, this has nothing to do with liberalism, A, and B, actually limits the mind more and limits the capacity of man and kind of begins to present nature as the inevitable thing, which will become, which will unfold and is ultimately, um, Predetermined, which is what we talked about in the last in the last episode, that there's that he wants us to believe, and that we must believe uh, if we're going to act morally, that life is uh, dramatic rather than epic, that it is contingent, that we can do things that can change it. So then the next thing that he gets into is a bit um, more, um, it's a bit more complicated, and it's the idea um, that this kind of, as he would put it, a liberal notion of religion, that all religions practice different things, but ultimately believe the same thing. And then he applies this specifically to Buddhism and Christianity. And what he begins by saying is that first of all, this is just just obviously not true, because on the face of it, most of the world religions have fairly similar um, practices. When you look at Islam and Judaism and Christianity, you know, the three big Abrahamic religions that account for a majority of the world's population, all of them involve similar things. They involve weekly worship and they involve priests, uh, or, you know, it would be an imam in, in Islam, uh, but the idea of a holy man who kind of presides over the rituals of, of the faith. So he says in some ways, and, and even in the East, when you look at Buddhism, there's a similar structure there. Um, So he says, actually, on the face of it, many religions look very similar in the way that they practice. And the thing that actually differentiates them is what they claim to be true about reality. And the thing I've always found very odd about this claim, um, which is, I think even today, oftentimes kind of held uh, to be the liberal approach to, to religions, is that it actually doesn't honor the true diversity of these religions. It treats them as kind of an extension of uh, a liberal ideology or religious understanding. It doesn't treat each one individually. If you asked an actual Muslim, if they thought that what they believed was different and what they practiced was different than Christianity, then they would certainly say yes, and they could probably enumerate for you the ways in which it was different. They would say that Christianity is, you know, that we believe in multiple gods because of the Trinity and things like that. And so um, really this kind of imposition of a mono-religion onto all religions, I've always thought was really very kind of anti-liberal and actually did not honor religions for what they are, being different and allow them to come in, come into conversation with each other. And if we're actually going to honor each other as people and as intellects, we have to acknowledge the differences and engage with them. So then he goes into, um, he kind of dives into Buddhism as an example. And people often said that there are many similarities between Buddhism and Christianity. And, um, and I think it's worth noting that there are there are some similarities, again, in practices. You might think of someone like Thomas Merton, who was a um, Catholic priest who worked a lot in the East, and he did a lot of work um, with kind of spiritual practices of the East and learning how to calm and center and meditate. But even as he did that, he made it very clear that that what was believed in Christianity was distinct and at some points really conflicting with Buddhism. So I think that's interesting, kind of a support um, 60 years on to Chesterton's understanding of the similarities in practice but the difference in, um, in belief. And uh, he dives into this, um, I guess it must have been a book during his time, about uh, the similarities between Judaism and Christianity. And essentially what he says is that all of the similarities it marks are either the similarities of practices like that there are priests or um, that they have these various similar things, or they're things that we would kind of assume that all reasonable people would believe. Like they'll say, well, they believe in peace. And it's like, well, yes, ideally, um, if we believe in the idea of a natural law that we have some kind of moral law in our hearts, however that's produced, Obviously, most rational, reasonable people who have empathy are going to believe that cruelty is wrong and that we shouldn't kill people for no reason and um, that we should give to the poor. We hope that that would be something of a similarity that would be shared by all people because God's nature is written in our hearts and because um, that seems to be shared throughout all cultures. So he says, really, these similarities are very um, superficial because they would be things that would probably be shared by everyone. And so after this, he gets down to, okay, but what is the fundamental difference between these two? And the way that he identifies it is as the pictures, the differing pictures of the saints of Buddhism and of Christianity. And he says that, um, and this kind of becomes a central argument, he says that the eyes of the Christian saint are alert and awake and looking up towards something, and that the eyes um, and that of a Buddhist image are closed. And of course, we could think of this as the meditating monk. You might think of someone going, mmm, and having their eyes closed, um, as differentiated from the Christian saint, who is usually looking up in raptures. My, my image of this would be either St. Francis, who was always looking up to the heavens, sometimes throwing up his arms or uh, trees of Avila thrown into raptures as you as she looks up to the heavens. And the difference between these um, really is rooted in the idea of persons and personality and of what the heart of reality is and the difference between Buddhism and Christianity in that. So for Buddhism, there are, uh, I was just looking it up, and there are kind of four tenets that um, most all kinds of Buddhists would believe, I believe. And this would be consistent across um, Different kind of understandings of it. The first of which is that existence is suffering. The second of which is that suffering has a cause, which is craving and attachment. Um, third, that there is a cessation of suffering, which is nirvana, and that the path to cessation are are these particular kind of actions or or ways to become better. And um, and nirvana, interestingly, I think this is where. Uh, it's important to see the difference. Is that Nirvana is a transcendent state in which there is neither suffering, desire, nor, and this is important, sense of self. The subject is released from the effects of karma. So, for um, for Buddhism, ultimately, everything is one thing. As in, there are no distinct individuals. And in so much as we think of ourselves as distinct individuals who have desires and wants and needs, we suffer. And so for them, suffering comes from being an individual and desiring things. And so the goal is ultimately to stop desiring things and become one with the universe. And this is what nirvana is, is losing your sense of self and becoming attached um, to the universe, which is all unified and etc, etc. Now, of course, there are elements of this that are that sounds similar to and are shared in Christianity, um, but ultimately, what is different is that Christians believe, and this is the whole bit that Chesterton gets into, is that desires are not inherently bad, because God created us as separate from Himself to be fulfilled by Himself, and there's that's why Chesterton gets into all of this um, this beautiful language about God kind of severing us with the sword, severing between the being between him and us so that we could actually be able to love each other. And that Christ comes with a sword because only when we recognize that we are separate human beings can we be able to accept and love one another. We are not simply um, blobs from the eternal God blob meant to go and reabsorb into God and lose our sense of self. God has created us and this is a mystery but as separate entities with beings with wills, with desires uh, and that's good because it allows us to truly love And um, I, I think this is very much Augustinian and if any of you all were with me in uh, in the book club last year we talked a lot about this about how for Augustine desire is not bad. But we have to recognize that all desires are ultimately grounded in our being created by God and being fulfilled by God. And often we're fulfilled by God through things. So for instance, I desire food and that is good and I'm fulfilled by food, but ultimately I'm fulfilled by that food because God provides it for me. And so if I make the food and end in itself, and I don't remember that it is through God that I'm able to be filled by food, then I will make food into an idol and will become smaller and smaller because I turn away from the source of my being. So for Christianity, there is this belief that essentially the self is not meant to be absorbed and, and looked into nothingness in, into being, but rather is created separate um, from God for the glory of being able to choose and to love him. So the essential difference between Buddhism and Christianity is that one looks inward for salvation and believes that everything is the same, while the other, Christianity, looks outward and holds that everything is different. And what's interesting, I think, too, is that uh, something that both Buddhism and Christianity agree on is that much of our suffering does come from desire. Um, But Buddhism wants to say, those, that's because desire is bad, because ultimately we need to learn to not desire anything and to be, um, to be satisfied and then to become one with the universe. Whereas Christianity says desire is good, and at the heart of every desire, even the most broken ones, is a whispering of our ultimate desire to be fulfilled in God and our creator. It makes me think of that often quoted, yet never gets too old um, passage from The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis, where he says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea we are far too easily pleased. And so Chesterton begins to paint this picture of Christianity in which we are radically different from God, separate not in a bad way, but in a sense of having our own integrity as beings because God created us that way. And this freedom means that there is this dynamism and this going back and forth, our responsibility to God and God's action towards us. To the extent, he even argues, that God would come and be weak for us, that he would submit himself to death for us because there is such a dynamic interaction between the will of our own will and the will of God. But Chesterton maintains that this kind of dynamic will between us is actually what sustains societies. If we didn't have the idea... A, that we had wills, and B, that we were responsible in some way to God and to each other, then how would we ever have the reformation or the revolution that he talks about in the previous chapters? As he kind of notes, the idea that we don't have distinct personalities and that we're all meant to meld into each other, um, or simply that there's no afterlife, all these things, even just on a practical level, kind of undermine our ability to fight for, to live well, and to have a just society. I had a very dear friend of mine who is um, deeply and stubbornly atheist, but he would always say to me that I have to live like there is a moral law. I have to live like there is a God, Um, that there's some recompense for the way that I act and the way that we act towards each other, or else my intense drive for justice means nothing. And of course, this doesn't necessarily justify God's existence. It doesn't necessarily give us an argument for God's existence. It might be that somehow, um, magically, evolution has created in us um, a phantasm that makes us believe this so that we'll act morally, but then we would have to ask, why does acting morally matter? Because it doesn't always equate to the same thing as survival. But all this to say, what he points out is that ultimately, having this belief in freedom in our ability to choose, to love, and then also in our responsibility to each other and to God. This is the foundation not only for Christianity, but also for society as we know and have practiced it in the world. And I think this gets back to the idea that um, that even as we wrestle with an atheistic society, we are ultimately in the West wrestling with a Christian society that's a little bit lost its moorings. And so he has this, this kind of wonderful passage at the end where he says, by destroying these Christian ideas, we're not just destroying earthly things or, or, or heavenly things, we're not just destroying ideas, we're actually destroying... Um, what it means to live well and responsibly in our world, in the secular world as you'd have it. He writes um, rather sarcastically, the secularists have not wrecked divine things, the secularists have wrecked secular things. Which is to say that if we are going to enjoy life, enjoy love, fight for justice, all of these things depend upon this kind of faith in the separateness of human beings and their dignity and honor and their responsibility to and with each other. And ultimately, that depends on understanding of our separateness, our will, our ability to choose and be responsible to and with God. And so that is where Chesterton leaves us as he goes into this final chapter. I hope that uh, my explanation has not confused you more, but has perhaps helped you kind of think and wrestle through this chapter. I can't wait to hear all of your thoughts And, um, and also to have next week's final chapter with you all. I also wanted to tell you all to look out for a little kind of special podcast I'm having this week with my friend, Glenn Packiam, who is an Anglican priest here in Colorado Springs. And he's coming out with a book called Blessed, Broken, and Given about how our lives and our stories matter when we live them um, in the kingdom. And we have a great podcast about that tomorrow. That was a lot of fun. So keep your eyes out for that. But in the meantime, I want to see your comments, your ideas, and your thoughts on this week's chapter. So head over to Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and let me know what you think of this week's chapter. Much love. Thank you all for sticking with me. And I hope to see many of you at at the events this weekend and next. Blessings, guys.